Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are a God of love who has created your universe to live in harmony with, with you and your character of love. We ask that your spirit will join us, lighten our minds, draw our hearts together as we celebrate you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson 13 in the quarterly book of Romans, and the title is Christian Living. When you hear the title Christian Living, what do you think? You think primarily health, health reform? Do you think all the things you can't do, which may vary depending on your denominational affiliation, but Christian living, no smoking, no movies, no jewelry, no dresses, no alcohol, no meat, no cheese, no TV. Is that Christian living? All the things you can't do. Do you think of relationship uh, restrictions uh, um, in Christian living? Uh, well, Christian living means no women leadership and no female pastors. That's Christian living. And men, and men are to, uh, uh, to, to rule the home and women must submit to their husbands. Is, is, that, is that Christian living? No. <laughs> well, I thought we'd look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, um, regarding what, what is Christian living. And we'll read a couple verses and then, and then make some comments and keep going through. It says, so I tell, you, I tell you this plainly. I insist on it in the Lord. If you were to grow and mature... You must think for yourselves and not live like the Gentiles who believe all kinds of things that don't make sense. Their minds are darkened and their thinking is confused because they have rejected the truth about God and his methods and have preferred lies that harden their hearts and separate them from God. That's the remedy, by the way. So, first question, would this mean that non-Christian living, if you're living not like a Christian, like somebody who's not a Christian, it would be to believe superstitious nonsense. Things that don't make sense to reject the truth about God, to harden your hearts and separate yourself from God, would, would that be what a non-Christian does? Yes. Even if they're a member of the church? Yes. Yes, and you'll, you'll discuss... Being members of a church doesn't make you a Christian. Oh, I love what you just said. She said, being a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian. Keep going on. <coughs> Excuse me. They have lost all compassion, morality, and tenderness, and have immersed themselves in sensuality, practicing every kind of impurity, and are constantly lusting for more. Do we see this description in Christian homes? Do we see hardness of heart, a desire to use coercion, punishment, violence even by some who call themselves Christians? The rates, um, for those who don't know, the rates of pornography use, Child molestation and spouse abuse are no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes in America and, uh, and Europe. I take the premise that there's something wrong in the form and the way Christianity is practiced. Is that is true? There's something wrong in Christianity. Because Christian, genuine Christianity, to be like Jesus, changes the heart, changes the way we treat people. And genuine people who are like Jesus, I will tell you, if they're really like Jesus in heart, they won't view pornography. They won't molest their kids. They won't beat their spouse. And if that's going on, then they have a form of godliness that Paul talked about, but no power. It's not real Christianity. So why does this happen in Christian homes? Because Christianity has been infected with this idea that sin problem is do's, do's and don'ts, behavioral, legal stuff, and salvation is a matter of getting your legal debts canceled and paid. And that happens when you go before God in prayer and claim the blood of Jesus as your legal payment and it gets applied to record books in heaven and you get declared to be righteous even though you're not. That'll be emphasized. Even though you haven't been made righteous, you are not righteous. You won't be changed to be righteous, but you're declared by God to be righteous. 
And now you can rest secure that you won't be burned in hell because Jesus has paid your penalty and that penalty has been, been, been applied to your legal accounts in heaven. And do you see, none of that changes the heart. None of that transforms the inner person. That's why we have this. Keep going with the, the, with the verse, verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ by practicing such impure behavior. Instead, you heard of him and studied the truth of God's methods and character as revealed by Jesus. You were taught that the former ways of life, the survival of the fittest ways, the selfish me-first ways, only lead to self-destruction and death, and that health and life consist of putting off such motives and desires. You were taught the importance of being recreated in heart and mind and displacing the principles of selfishness with those of love and experiencing a complete transformation of character such that you are an entirely new being, recreated in heart attitude to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Does Christian living mean simply a change in behavior, that we behave differently? Or does it mean a change in heart? Change in heart. Yeah, that's what, that's what Christian living is. Can this change of heart come through a legal accounting process? And do you see why that leads to a false security and actually obstructs the change of heart? Therefore, each of you must choose to stop being deceitful in every way and instead be truthful and honest in all your conduct. For we are members of one body and such behavior injures you and the body. Why do people deceive other people? Why do people lie? What's the reason? What's the motive that people lie? Oh, that's reason. To protect yourself, which means the emotion associated with that is fear. fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid because they were naked, but they fear, fear, perfect love casts out all fear. That's right. People lie because they're afraid. And, and, and that lying is an act to watch out for self, protect self. And why do we need to watch out for self and protect ourselves by lying? Because we don't trust God to watch out for us. That's why people lie. Or we don't trust other people. Not for greed. For greed? Yes, we won't we don't trust that we will get the deal we want, get the money that we want, get the get ahead financially. We don't trust our financial future to the Lord. People lie. If we know God and know that He is love and we know and we without question that He wants our best interest, can we trust our future in His hands? even if you've done wrong and committed sin. Keep on with the Bible verse. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let your anger or any strong emotion take control of your mind and determine your choices. Don't retain anger in your hearts. The devil tempts us through our emotions, so don't give him an opportunity to confuse or lead you astray. The person who has been stealing has been practicing the methods of selfishness. And if they desire to get well, they must have selfishness replaced by love. When selfishness is replaced with love, they stop stealing and instead get a job in order to be able to give to others in need. What is the basis of Christian living? The base primary motive of Christian living? Other-centeredness. Love for other people. If you love other people, do you steal from them? See how simple that is? 
Don't speak unwholesome words, for your words react on the mind, and unwholesome words damage and destroy. Instead, speak what is helpful and uplifting, encouraging others and benefiting those who listen. Did you know that when you speak, and I know you know from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, that when you speak, it's a revelation of what's in the heart. I know you know that. But did you know it is not only a revelation of what's in the heart, but when you speak something, it reacts back upon you and reinforces it. So you become more confident in the idea. And if you speak it enough times, you can even come to believe things that you know are false, but now you come to believe they're true. And do not close your minds to seeking more truth, unless grieve the spirit of truth who set your minds free from Satan's lies and settled you into the truth of God's character and methods for the day of our deliverance. Does Christian living mean that we develop hearts that love the truth, that we're open to to move forward in truth, to develop new insights, new conversations, to put away old ideas, to actually let go former beliefs if those beliefs are proven with evidence to be false? Are we open for that? Or do we have a system of creeds, a system of doctrines, a system of beliefs that we've been told that the, that the church for hundreds of years have believed in? And who are we to question the fathers? And who are we to question the, 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 the hierarchy? And we just must believe what others tell us. Which is the Christian living? If God is infinite and we're finite, which, which is true, right? God's infinite, we're finite. How big is the gap? Do we ever come to know all truth? So what happens if we come to a point and we say, well, I don't need any more truth. I, I'm, I've, I've got all I need. We stop advancing. We stop growing toward God. Purge your hearts from all bitterness, rage, and anger. Desire for vengeance, conflict, rumor-mongering, along with other forms of malice and ill will. Why must we do this? Or should I say, must we do this if we want to be like Christ? Why must we do this if we want to be like Christ? Why? What happens in your heart if you hold to bitterness, to anger, to resentment, to desire for vengeance? What will happen to you? Even, and we're, and we're going to assume that you were actually done wrong. Somebody stole from you. Somebody assaulted you. Somebody molested you. Somebody wronged you. And you hold to bitterness and resentment and anger and a desire to vent for, for vengeance. What happens to you? You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship, which means does your heart become more like Christ? Or does your heart become like the hardened, like the person who injured you? So the reason Paul's saying, purge your hearts from bitterness and rage and anger and desire for vengeance and conflict, because it's the only way you can actually live like Christ. If you don't, you won't live like Christ. You'll actually harden yourself against him, even though you might be a leader in the church. And then be kind, gentle, compassionate, and forgiving with each other as God is forgiving you, forgiving to you. Remember that all humanity suffers with the same infection of selfishness and God provides the same remedy for all. So what is Christian living? How would you say it? What is it? Loving others. Loving others. I love that. That's very succinct, but it's true. Loving others. Living like Christ, right? And the big principles, truth, love, freedom. Leave other people free. So can a person live like this, truthful, respecting the individuality of others, loving other people more than self, and be homeless? Oh, yes. Can they live like this and wear jewelry? Oh, no. <laughs> can they live like this and be a woman preacher? 
Well, I, I, some would say no. <laughs> some, some would argue that's not possible. Uh, can a person live like this and have a glass of wine with dinner periodically? Sure. Now, did I just promote alcohol? No, what I did was I pointed out that you cannot become a Christian by avoiding alcohol. Can you? First paragraph says, We are now in the last part of our study of Romans, the book from which the Protestant Reformation was born, the book that more than any other should indeed show us why we are Protestants and why we must remain that way. As Protestants, and especially as Seventh-day Adventists, we rest on the principle of sola scriptura, the Bible alone as the standard of our faith. And it is from the Bible that we have learned the same truths and so forth and so on. Is this principle of sola scriptura actually biblical? No. See, and I'm going to say, I guess it depends on what you mean by the term. So we're going to unpack a couple different meanings. Sola scriptura, if it means this, is it biblical? That the Bible, Scripture, the Bible, is the only source of information God uses to reveal heavenly truth and the only one that we can use to form our beliefs about God. Now, this is a lie, and this is, this is a lie that certain people that we've had conversations with hold to. But the Bible itself teaches that God uses many avenues to reveal, biblical, to reveal heavenly truth. For instance, direct conversation. God spoke to Moses at the bush and at Sinai. Should Moses have said, well, you know, I have to check my Bible on this, God. (laughs) Or angelic revelation. Gabriel spoke to Mary that she was going to be the mother of Jesus, right? Should Mary said, "Um, um, I'm sorry, but you'll have to show me a Bible verse where I can believe that. Prophetic speakers. Jonah went to Nineveh with a message. Did he quote scripture to them? Did they say, show me in the Bible? We can't believe you. Just pointing out, God speaks in other ways besides Scripture. What about Romans, even when there were Scriptures available, like in Mary's day, Scripture was available. Jonah's day, Scriptures were available. Okay. Romans one twenty, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made, so that men are without excuse. The Bible says he reveals himself, his divine nature to us in his creation, so science and nature. And the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me, check me out from your own life experiences. And all these methods have in common is they're leading us to how reality works. Truth. Truth. God is the source of truth. Satan is the father of lies. If you follow truth, truth always leads back to God. So the first premise is wrong. How about this one? The scripture is the only written source of divine revelation and godly truth. And thus it's the only written source we can use to form our beliefs about God. True or false? False. False. Have you ever read any other material than the Bible in which you found truth about God that enlightened your mind? And the Bible actually says that spiritual gifts are given to various people, wisdom, teaching, preaching, and so forth. And some of those people, those gifts have written things. And we've been blessed by those. What about this one? The Bible is superior to other sources, written sources of information and supersedes other Christian books, church manuals, church traditions, church rules, church laws, creeds, consensus statements. In other words, the scripture is the ultimate authority from which all other materials must harmonize. Yes. I say yes. 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 
There we go. It's a check and balance. Okay? So why do some people want to make the Scripture, Sola Scriptura, mean that all our doctrines must come only from Scripture, uh, divorced from any other avenue of information? Why do they want to do that? Because when you take Scripture passages, isolated and divorced from their anchors in design laws, how God's laws work in nature, and, and your own real life experiences, how life works, when you divorce your interpretations from those things, then you can create superstitious beliefs, things that make no sense, things that are nonsense, things that are contradictory, and claim that they're supported by the Bible. They're Bible beliefs. That's why. And that's why within Christianity, we have 34,000 different Christian groups, <clears throat> all claiming the Bible supports their view. And they're arguing back and forth. This text means this. This text means that. When you anchor your scripture... In, well, it has to harmonize with design law. It has to harmonize with how reality actually works. Then there's many interpretations that are ruled out, particularly the false legal penal things are ruled out. So which are you most comfortable with? Sola Scriptura? That means we only use the Bible and nothing else, or we harmonize the Bible with God's other revelations. And well, this is what we in Come and Reason Ministries have called the integrative evidence-based approach. Harmonizing scripture with science nature and our real life experiences. And it was after we actually developed this view that we came across these quotes. It was very, very exciting when we found these quotes um, from one of the founders of the Adventist Church. The first one's in Christ's Object Lessons, page 125, and it says this. The great storehouse of truth is the word of God, the written word, the book of nature, and the book of experience in God's dealing with human life. Oh, that was cool. I was like, yeah, I like that. And then in the book of education, 130. Rightly understood, both the revelations of science and the experiences of life are in harmony with the testimonies of Scripture to the constant working of God in nature. Okay? And then education page 77. Jesus followed a divine plan of education. Oh, a divine plan. That's a good one. The schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, He did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heavenly appointed sources, from useful work, from the study of scriptures and of nature and the experiences of life, God's lesson books. And then, somebody emailed this to me recently, in the book Steps to Christ, I'm just going to point out um, what's described here. This is page 85. Tell me what's described here. Many are the ways in which God is seeking to make himself known to us and to bring us into communion with him. Nature speaks to our senses without ceasing. The open heart will be impressed with the love and glory of God as revealed through the works of his hand. The listening ear can hear and understand the communications of God through the things of nature. There we have one thread, nature. Here's uh, Steps to Christ, page 87, two pages later. God speaks to us through his providential workings and through the influence of his spirit upon the heart. In our circumstances and surroundings and the changes daily taking place around us, we may find the precious lessons of, if our hearts are but open to discern them. Which one is that? Experience. Experience. And then, same page, next paragraph, page 87. God speaks to us in his word. Here we have in clearer lines the revelation of his character of dealing, dealings with men of the great works of redemption. So we can be confident if you're searching for truth, use scripture, absolutely, but make your understandings of scripture harmonize with how life actually works and God's designs in nature and science. Yes, Russell. Yeah, just 
we need to proceed with caution here because in nature we see two antagonistic principles at work. We can see the principles of Bible fitness, and we can see God's original design in nature. In Scripture, there's language that was written by men who already had a legal mindset, and there's also language of, of design. And in our own experiences, we can experience both the law of sin and death and design law. So understanding a understanding the laws, the design laws that we've we've talked about is so frequently in here, I think is the is the is the foundation of, of rightly interpreting scripture, science, and, and our experience. Right. And so when you separate the three threads, as we talked about, science all by itself as you point out, because it's infected with an antagonistic principle, can lead to godlessness. And the idea that evolutionary survival of fittest method, methods are actually a way to advance. Or experience by itself can lead to the mystical religions and this new form, this new idea in Christianity where everything's interpreted through one's experience, which is leading people down some other trails. Or scripture by itself then leads to this confusion with all these 34,000 different doctrinal interpretations of things. And so, yes, exactly. We don't want, we want all of them to harmonize and we want to find principles that are shown to be true in all three. Yes. Yeah. So Christian living, do we believe because somebody else taught us some authority or do we believe because we've come to think and reason and examine the evidence for ourselves and it makes sense and it works that way? So then do we base our beliefs on experimentation, on experiments? Hmm. How do we balance your personal experience and your feelings on matters with experiment, which some might say is scientific? How do we balance that in life? Well, here's one of the founders of the SDA Church, and she wrote this. See if you agree or disagree with this. And as you hear this, ask the question of yourself, does this method that is being described here does it lead a person towards superstitious, nonsense believing or healthy, reality-based believing? Which, which, if you followed this method being described here, which, which, which type of direction do you go in your formation of your beliefs? And by the way, this was written in 1871 to a woman who was struggling with some health problems. And uh, the last paragraph is, is why I, I put down that this was written in 1871. You ought to know when it was written because it's quite profound. But here we go. As I have stated before, you, my sister, rely upon experience. Your experience decides, um, <clears throat> your experience decides you, you to pursue a certain course. But that which many term experience is not experience at all. It is simply habit. A mere indulgence, blindly and frequently ignorantly followed with a firm set determination and without intelligent thought or inquiry relative to the laws at work in the accomplishment of the result. Real experience is a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice and uncontrolled by previously established opinions and habits. Pause right there. Did you hear what that is? We have an open mind. We go in without presuming to know what the answer will be, but with an honest heart seeking to see how reality actually works. We're going to test and taste and see, or test and see that the Lord is good. Check it out. An experiment. Okay, keep going with, this, with, the, with the quote. The results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every habit that is not in harmony with physical and moral laws. 
What kind of laws do you think are being described and, and talked about here? These are design laws. You can't test experimentally impose laws. You can only test experimentally design laws. Does that make sense? Okay, we'll keep going. The idea, the idea of others gainsaying what you have learned by experience seems to you to be folly and even cruelty itself. But there are more errors received and firmly retained from false ideas of experience than from any other cause. For the reason that what is generally termed experience is not experience at all. Because there has never been a fair trial by actual experiment and thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Wow. And we're talking spiritual stuff here too. Okay. Keep going. Your experience was shown to me, shown to me, to be as not reliable because it is opposed to natural law. It is in conflict with the unchanging principles of nature. Superstition, my dear sister, arising from a diseased imagination, arrays you in conflict with science and principle. Are you hearing what's being described here? How many religious people do stuff in their practice of Christianity that is superstitious in nature? Can you think of any? Communion commonly is practiced superstitiously. Explain. Explain. What's a superstitious practice? Repetition. Superstitious. Believing something is happening from the material itself, the wafer, the wine, somehow has some qualities or components that will actually, when I partake, does something to me magically. Transubstantiation. Well, okay, there would be one form of it, but it's not the only one, transubstantiation. It becomes the literal flesh of Jesus. That's superstition. But others, I can't be saved unless I take the communion wafer. And the communion wafer is what cleanses me. That's superstition. The communion wafer doesn't cleanse anybody. Anybody believe that little piece of wheat and, and salt and water cleanses anybody? No, it doesn't, but some people do. They look at it superstitiously. You know, hocus pocus? Would you say that's kind of a superstitious thing? Many people believe that hocus pocus came from the Latin mass, hocus corpus diem. Hocus corpus diem, hocus, po- hocus pocus. Back when it was practiced in Latin and people didn't understand. Given the wafer, the priest would say hocus corpus diem. Hocus pocus. It's magic. Something's magic. We don't know what's going on here, but something's going on. Keep going. There are many invalids today who will remain so because they cannot be convinced that their experience is not reliable. The brain is the capital of the body, the seat of all nervous force, forces and of mental action. The nerves proceeding from the brain control the body. By the brain nerves, mental impressions are conveyed to all the nerves of the body as by telegraph wires and they control the vital actions of every part of the system. All the organs of motion are governed by the communications they receive from the brain. That was in 1871, guys. That's profound. Three Testimonies 69. So what did you hear being described? Did you hear scientific method being described? How many theology professors are willing to apply this? I've actually brought this up with some, and they 
became very righteously superior and said that the Bible supersedes science and cannot be submitted to it. Or it would have 500 years of church tradition. Yes, or church tradition. There you go. This is the only safe path because it's the path of truth, assimilating all the evidence God has given and training the mind. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What does this mean? The truth will set you free. The legal view interprets this as the truth that Jesus paid your legal debt and when you accept his payment, then it is applied to your heavenly account and you are set free from the punishment God would inflict upon you if you don't get that payment. But since you've accepted the true payment, then you're set free from the punishment. That's what many people think it means. That's not what it means. You see, the truth, where does truth have its power? Satan is the father of, where does lie, where do lies have their power? In your mind, not in books. Lies don't have any power. If a lie is written in a book and nobody ever reads it, it has no power. It only has power as it comes into your mind. And the truth has power as it comes into your mind as well. And the truth sets you free from the lies. And there it sets you free from the lies about God, which sets you fear from free from fear, insecurity, misunderstanding, and free from the enslavement of sin itself. Do you understand that sin enslaves you? It wraps chains around you. When you break design laws, you lose freedom. The laws of health are easy to see. I have patients who were heavy smokers, and now they have COPD, and they are chained to an oxygen tank. They don't have the freedom they used to have. They can't climb stairs. They can't go for a bike ride. They can't even walk across their house. They are slaves. Their freedom has been compromised. They were, they were chained to the cigarettes before that. And they were chained to the cigarettes before that, but that's true. Exactly. What about the person who cheats and lies and steals? They live in fear. Fear of being found out. How many politicians right now are living in fear? how many person uh, television personalities are living in fear i mean there's been a lot of outing in the last couple of months hasn't there and and what's coming home to roost most of them are admitting it it's not just allegation the allegation brought them to go i'm sorry i'm sorry my bad they're they're admitting it so i don't go on allegation i go on the people who've acknowledged and yep that was me i did it it was bad they've lived in fear they haven't been free People who do this worry, they become hypervigilant, they have anxiety, they don't sleep as well, and they distrust other people. All right, Sunday's lesson. First paragraph, it says, In Romans 14, 1 through 3, the question question concerns the eating of meats that have been uh, sacrificed to idols. The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, ruled that the Gentile converts should refrain from eating such foods. But there's always the question whether these meats sold in public, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Did the New Testament church, in their ruling, give rules, or did they rule, i.e. determine and define for the converts the parameters of design law and how to live in harmony with design law? Did they give a rule? Here's a rule that we want you to obey. Or did they simply determine or, or, or make a judgment, make a rule, that these are the parameters of the design laws that are healthy for you? Level four and below thinking, imperial, legalistic, law-thinking people, they use stuff like this. The church made up rules, and they expected the new converts to follow their rules. These are the rules they had to follow. Not so. You look at the three, and all three of these were simply communicating design law. 
Let me walk you through. This is out of uh, the God Shaped Heart, page 152 and 153. The New Testament church understood the distinction between imposed and designed law. When the immature were struggling with whether to require the Gentile converts to adhere to the imposed rules of a symbolic system, the church leader said, instead, this is a quote now from Acts 15.20, instead we should write to them, telling them to abstain from foods polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. These instructions are not imposed rules, but the wisdom of design law. So let's go through those. Food polluted by idols. An idol cannot change the nutritional quality of the food. Therefore, eating food offers to idols does not pollute the body. Paul makes this clear in Romans 14, which we're talking about today. The issue they were addressing was the issue of the design law called the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. As we... It's called modeling in psychiatry. What we believe has power over us, thus the truth heals and sets free. Lies damage and enslave. So what what the council is saying, don't allow your minds to become contaminated by giving any credence to the idols. Thus don't eat food polluted by the idea that it is a bounty given to you by a false god. Don't do it. If you think that idol has some power, then don't eat that food. But if you're a man of great faith and you know it's just a piece of wood and it can't do anything, then eat the food offered idols. It doesn't matter. What about sexual morality? Again, God designed relationships to operate on love and trust. And in that marriage relationship, the intimacy helps bonding. You get neurobiological circuitry change so that your reward circuits will find your spouse more enjoyable and more pleasurable than someone else. That's God's that's bonding. That's how God designed the brains to rewire. Sexual immorality breaks this design. It undermines unity. It undermines families. It undermines uh, and it causes uh, increasing uh, fear and inflammation and it's unhealthy to do it. So it's, again, design law. And then meats from strangled animals and blood also violates the laws of health. These are design laws. The blood carries all the waste products. And even when God gave them instructions on how to eat meat, they were to drain all the blood. They were to, the, the animal was to be hung upside down, and they were to cut the throat and let all the blood drain out. They weren't to kill it by strangulation. Killing it by strangulation caused this terror, this, this adrenaline rush, caused uh, uh, all these catecholamines and stress hormones, and it kept all the toxins from the blood in the body. And so they were to drain all that out, and they weren't to drink the blood, because that's where all the poisons and various waste products are. So again, these were not rules. These were simply, here's design law, here's how to live with with the healthiest principles that God created life to operate upon. Second paragraph. It says, meanwhile, to receive one weak in faith meant to accord him or her full membership and social status. Notice, to accord him full membership and social status. The person was not to be argued with, but given the right to his or her own opinion. Their own opinion, given the right to their own opinion. Has this been your experience in the church? That you have been given the right to full fellowship, full participation, with an opinion that differs from people maybe in leadership? Do you practice this principle in how you treat others? So has it been your experience in how you've been treated? And have you practiced it in how you treat others? You see... Ellen White wrote something that I loved and I've really resonated with. The truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation. You see, I am not disturbed when people have a different view from me. It's like, okay, show me the evidence. 
Show me your reason. Show me the rationale. I'm a finite being. I can learn. I can grow. Show me why that way of seeing it is better and more healthy and more reasonable and more consistent with the three threads of evidence than the way I'm currently seeing it. Help me out with that. The people who hold to a viewpoint, and you can see this, this is an idea, so have some view that doesn't comport with actual reality, they get very angry and threatened when you question it. They don't like you to bring evidence to bear. It unsettles them. It causes cognitive dissonance. They want to shut down the discussion. Bottom Pink Session says, although we need to keep in mind the principles seen in today's lesson, are there not times and places that we need to step in and judge, if not the person's heart, at least his or her actions? Are we... Uh, are we to step back and say and do nothing in every situation? Isaiah 56.10 describes watchmen as dumb dogs. They cannot bark. How can, you, how can we know when to speak and when to keep silent? How can we strike the right balance? So, first question, are we to judge? No. Yes. No. The question is, what are we to judge? No. Okay. Notice I just said, are we to judge? Okay, what are we to judge? Are we to, for instance, are we to make judgments about facts, about ideas, about truths, about about somebody's perspective, about a, a theological viewpoint? Are we to make judgments about those things? Yes. 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 <laughs> what standard are we to use to make those judgments? How do you tell whether something's true or false? Character of God? How, have you ever heard this? This is Isaiah... 8, 9, 19, and 20. Have you ever heard this one? And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards and whisper and mutter, should not the people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. You ever heard that one? What does it mean? To the law and to the testimony. What law? Well, the, the, the Hebrew word there is Torah. So it's referring to the whole, the law in the, in the Jewish way is the whole Testament writings, to the law and to the Testament. And in the Old Testament writings, whenever they came up against idol worship, and the true God was compared to the idol, what was the one test that came up over and over and over that the prophets called upon to differentiate the true God from all the false gods? Do you remember? There's one attribute, one perspective, one idea that they pointed to. The true God is the creator. These are the gods they can't create. Now, what kind of laws do creation work upon? Design law. It's to the law and to the testimony. To worship him who made the heavens. Even in the end of time, it's called back to creator worship. And you can't worship a creator God if you're worshiping an imperial dictator who makes up rules and the source of punishment. To come back to a creator God worship, you have to worship and understand his laws are design laws. That's creator worship. And so if we have preachers today who preach a God who makes up rules, who keeps track of all the bad things you've done, and who will inflict punishments on you, there is no light in them, according to Isaiah. Why are you seeking from these people who peep and mutter? Should not people seek after their God? To the law and to the testimony. If they teach this, there's no light in them. This is darkness. Why do you, it's the dark ages where this came from. 
This whole teaching, this whole imperialistic thing led into the Dark Ages, and it wasn't until people started rejecting it, and step by step we've come out of the Dark Ages. So we are to judge ideals, doctrinal statements, perspectives, and beliefs. Are we to judge whether someone else is healthy or not? Yes! Man, absolutely! Both physically and spiritually. Should you make a judgment about, you're about to have a child and you're going to have a babysitter, babysit your child. Should you make a judgment about whether that person's mature and healthy and, and reliable? Well, no, I can't judge. Uh, it doesn't matter that he's out, uh, he's on the, he's on the, uh, you know, the pedophile watch list. I, it doesn't matter. I can't make a judgment. Or do we make judgments about the healthiness and maturity of people? Aren't we supposed to do that? Now, is making judgments about the healthiness and maturity of people to carry out certain tasks? Do you make judgments about who you're going to let work on your car? Do you make judgments about what doctor you're going to see? Yes, we're making judgments about people's abilities and capacities all the time. Now, is that ulti- judging their ultimate eternal destiny? It is not. We are to make judgments. Absolutely. Are we to judge someone's motives? So should we try to understand and see if whether someone is coming to promote themselves or whether they're coming to promote the gospel ministry, promote God's purposes and calls? Should we try to differentiate that? Or should we say it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter if they're trying to promote themselves and then we're going we're gonna to fund them anyway. Should we try to discern that? To the best of our ability, we can't always read the heart, but, but if there's evidence and the way they carry themselves and, and so forth. Hebrews 5.14 says, and by the way, what's, what's necessary for you to make these types of judgments? Hebrews 5.14. The mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. We must practice thinking, practice weighing things out, understanding testable loss, looking from cause to effect, the close experimentation that we read earlier. And it builds confidence in how reality works and then life becomes predictable and you can look at certain things and you can know without having to test it again if i let go of this you can know what will happen you don't have to test it again. well i don't know let's let's test it and then we'll know you know you already know and so what i do in psychiatry in relationships i can see certain decisions certain ways people are acting and i can predict where that relationship will end up if they continue on that path i can predict it it is predictable Doctors can predict where somebody's health is going to end up if they keep doing certain things. We can predict that, can't we? Yes, because we know how the laws work. Consider this wisdom and see if you agree or disagree. This comes out of Second uh, Testimonies one twenty nine. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here's a great danger of many in, and uh, the city is, is, is blank. We, maybe we could have a Chattanooga in there, I don't know. They have not an experience for themselves. Remember we talked about what is a genuine experience? They haven't learned to think, to test, to weigh, to draw conclusions, see how they haven't done it. They have no experience. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are new and are ever liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent, that is all that is needed to convince them that the subjects under consideration are of no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded. 
through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes, walking as by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those who they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they will not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. They are not spiritual, therefore spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which relate to the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. Said the angel, cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. A noble self-reliance is, in, is needed in the Christian experience in warfare. Whoa. You know, uh, you can toss it. It's just maybe a person's opinion. I think there was a lot of wisdom there, personally. And I can tell you in my own experience, <clears throat> as I've traveled the country, I've had the experience of people being presented with one of my books, a DVD set that we put out. And I've gotten reports back. They wouldn't read it. They wouldn't look at it. Why? Well, because pastor so-and-so or president so-and-so or teacher so-and-so has told them that there's heresy in it. What are they doing? Letting some other person do their thinking for them. Not investigating for themselves. Not reading for themselves. Does your church teach you to think for yourself, to understand for yourself, to develop the ability to discern the right from your wrong for yourself? Or do they indoctrinate you into a creed, a system of beliefs, and then incite fear in you that if you change any of those beliefs, that is sin and you're going to be lost? Don't change. You know, one of the things I haven't said in a while, I'll say it again, I am not here to tell any of you what to think. You have your own mind, your own individuality. You need to think for yourself. But I am here to challenge you to think, to motivate you to think, to present ideas for you to contemplate. But I really am a believer in Romans 14. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Now, the last one, judgments. Are we to make a judgment about God? Yeah, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour for him to be judged rightly in human history as the one we can trust. And as you judge him to be trustworthy and you open your heart to him, then you experience his indwelling spirit and you're transformed and saved. As you judge him to be untrustworthy and you hold the doctrines that hide you and close your heart from him, you harden yourself against him. And then when are we to keep silent? That was one of the questions I just put in here. Jesus kept silent in two places. One, when he was talking to people whose hearts were closed and had no interest in the truth, he kept silent. And two when his audience was not mature enough to hear what he had to say. He said to his apostles, I have much to tell you, but you can't yet bear it. Two principles of silence. When the audience is closed and is only against you and they have no interest in the truth, and when you're talking to people who can't yet comprehend. And parents, of course, keep silent on many issues to their young children, don't they? Yes, that principle. But maybe it's the principle we could bring into some adults as well. I have much to say, but you can't yet bear it. Monday's lesson, 
Before the judgment. Before the judgment seat. What do you think of the title? Before the judgment seat. Well, here's the first paragraph. We tend to judge others harshly at times and often for the same things that we do ourselves. What we do doesn't seem as bad as uh, when others seem to do the same thing. We might fool ourselves by our hypocrisy, but not God, who is warned, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure you mete out, ye shall be measured against you. Why? Why will the measure and the judgment you put against others be the one that is you're judged against? If you go through the... And how do you read the text? Do you read it through human law construct? The human law construct reading that text is, well, it's because um, God knows the secret intents of the hearts, and he knows that you have set yourself up in his place, presumed his authority, put yourself as God to judge other people. That's a usurping of his power. That's sin, making yourself like a God, and then God will use that same against you when he judges you, and he will inflict the proper punishment for it. He used design law. You understand something else. Matthew 12, Jesus speaking. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Jesus told you the reason right here. Why will your words acquit or condemn you? Why? Because... It's, thank you, it's an evidence of the actual condition of the heart. And the same, you, you will be judged by the standard you judge others because the standard you're judging others is a revelation of your character, your heart. That's your actual condition. And so God's judgment is actually better described as his diagnosis. The actual diagnosis accurately of the condition of every heart and every mind. We've either been healed in character be like Christ, which is evidenced by our grace, our forgiveness, our loving other people, and thus are diagnosed to be like Christ. Or we've hardened our heart into selfishness and judgmentalism, and thus we're diagnosed to be like Satan in character. Second paragraph. Citation from Isaiah. It says, Citation from Isaiah supports the thought that all must appear for judgment. Every knee and every tongue in, uh, individualizes the summons. The implication is that each one of us will have to answer for his or her own life and deeds. Romans fourteen twelve. So, what law lens are you hearing this through? Here's how it reads Romans 14, 10 through 12 in the remedy. Who are you... Who are you then to judge your brother or sister? Do you think that you, some, you are somehow better? Why do you belittle and look at others with disdain? Don't you realize that we are all infected with the same sickness and will one day stand before God to see who has been healed? It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, everyone will kneel before me and be examined. Every mouth will reveal what is the condition of the heart. So then, each of us will stand before God and the true condition of our hearts will be revealed. Is there any biblical evidence that this is what it actually means, that God accurately diagnoses the heart? That's what the judgment of God is, the actual diagnosis. Those who've accepted Christ and been healed, those who've hardened and not. Well, Hosea 4.17 4, says, this is God speaking, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. 
What is that judgment? Is that a judgment? Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. And what is the judgment of? The condition of his heart. How about this one? This is Jeremiah 2.5. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Is that a judgment? How about this one? Revelation 22.11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Do you notice this is a condition of the heart? He who is this way. He who is this way. He who is this way. This is God's judgment. The accurate diagnosis of every heart. So Tuesday's lesson, I think we'll have some fun with this one. In the first paragraph, it says, In Romans 14, 17-20, Paul's putting various aspects of Christianity in proper perspective. Although diet is important, Christians should not quarrel over some people's choices to eat vegetables instead of flesh meats uh, that might have been sacrificed to idols. Instead, they ought to focus on righteous peace, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. How might we apply this idea to questions of diet in our church today? And then... You guys understand, we've talked about this where the wisdom of things offered to idols and so forth and so on, the ceremonial laws and blah, blah, blah. But the lesson on Wednesday speaks strongly that this wisdom in Romans 14 cannot be applied to the weekly Sabbath. This is what it says in Wednesday's lesson. To bring the weekly Sabbath into Romans 14.5, as some argue, is unwarranted. Can one imagine Paul taking such a laid-back attitude towards the fourth commandment? As we have seen all quarter, Paul places heavy emphasis on obedience to the law, so he certainly wasn't going to place the Sabbath commandment in the same category as people who were uptight about eating foods that it may have been offered to idols. Colossians. Yeah. So, so the question, can you imagine Paul bringing the Sabbath commandment into this? Yes. Absolutely yes. Why? Because you have to be convinced in your own mind. Exactly. Paul is talking about the real issues of salvation here. And the relationships of salvation are healing the heart and the mind. Christ-likeness of the inner man. Can a person be transformed in the inner workings of their heart against their wills? No. So a person must be fully persuaded in their own mind in order to be saved. So think about it this way. Would you say that it's important for people to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? Yes. And is it important that... In order to do that, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind that Jesus Christ is their Savior. So if you apply Jesus Christ as their Savior to this passage, are you diminishing the importance of Jesus Christ as your Savior? So if you apply the Sabbath to this text, are you diminishing the importance of the Sabbath? Not at all. Why did they argue this way then? Why are they so rabid and fearful? Can you hear the fear in here? They're afraid. They're scared. Why? Why can't they just simply say, of course, this applies to all Bible truths. No matter what the truth is, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Because they don't understand God's design law. They think it's a system of rules. They think that behavioral obedience to a particular day of the week will, will be somehow meritorious in one's salvation. It's not. It's an arbitrary test day of the week. The Sabbath is a sign, folks, a sign. That flag back here, it's a sign, it's a symbol. What's it a sign and symbol of? Is that flag America? The Sabbath is a sign or a symbol of God's government. It is not God's government. It's a sign or a symbol. Now, many people treat this flag as a holy object. They get very upset if you burn it, if you trample on it, if you disrespect it. 
people will go to war. Some people will go violent. They, 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 they really respect the flag. Many people understand that the Sabbath is holy. It, it, it represents something bigger than itself. But when the commandment says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, what day of the week do you think most wild living happens, most partying happens on? Friday night and Saturday, which is the Sabbath, right? Do you think because all that wild living and partying, what some might call sinning, more sin has happened on Sabbath, do you think that makes the Sabbath less holy? If you were to sin on that day every week, would that make the Sabbath less holy? So remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? Is your behavior keeping it holy? So what does it mean, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy? Are you keeping the Sabbath holy or are you keeping yourself holy? Or do you keep it holy? The Sabbath, it's holy. It doesn't get less holy if you violate it, does it? It doesn't get more holy if you keep it. It doesn't get more holy if you keep it. But do you? But do you, right, that's the question. Do you? And then can you keep your, now, put on your boots, guys. Can you keep yourself holy one day a week? No. Oh, my goodness. Sabbath keeping is not about one day a week. Sabbath keeping is internalizing, I will write my law on your hearts and minds, so that you live the principles of which the Sabbath is a sign. And the Sabbath is a sign of creator law. And God presented truth of his creatorship, his design protocols of love, truth, love, and left his creation free which was the Sabbath is a day of freedom. He stepped back and rested. No coercion, no pressure. And thus, the Sabbath is a sign of those people who value God as the creator and practice the principles of love presented in, or me, principles of truth presented in love, leaving others free. Whereas the beastly system is a system of imperialism. We make up a rule. That rule has no inherent consequence. We will test that rule. We will test you. If you break the rule, we will punish and coerce you. No one will buy or sell, say him who has the mark. You must practice our methods. And thus the mark of that beastly system is a system of imperialism. And many Seventh-day Adventists who value the Seventh-day Sabbath teach it through the beastly lens. And God will punish you if you break it. And it becomes a day of fear rather than a day of freedom. Yes? The concentration is on sins or acts rather than sin or our separation from God. Exactly. And thus, when they bring the Sabbath in to Romans 14, they take this beautiful passage of Paul where he's teaching the principles of God, let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind, present truth and love, leave people free, and they turn the Sabbath into something that is not that. The Sabbath is a test of obedience in which if you don't keep it, God will punish. And they corrupt his character that way. It's wrong. The Sabbath is a beautiful evidence of God's methods of truth presented in love, leaving people free. And in the context of war against his throne, creation week, he didn't use power to force knees to bow. He didn't use power to force angels in line. He just presented truth and love and left his beings free. And the Sabbath, he stepped back and rested and said, here's a time, think for yourself. It's amazing, it's beautiful. And then those of us who love it, we, we not only avoid selfish pursuits this day, we, we avoid selfishness all week. We live in love to others all week. Not just one day a week, right? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you have presented to us in love and the fact that you leave us free and you want us to be fully persuaded in our own minds. We ask for the spirit of truth to come, to enlighten our minds, to transform our hearts, to apply in the inmost being your methods into our hearts and open avenues for this message to go forward. Bring workers to the field, Lord. Remove obstacles. Let the world be lighted that you might come and we will see you face to face for we shall be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.